Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. A reassuring sense of safety flowed through her with the warmth which continued to seep deep into her as the beast touched her, and then it picked it up again, cradling her in two of its four arms. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, where we are reading the wonderful, whimsical, magical, strange Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle. I love this opening quote because this chapter is all about both strangeness and um, being outside of our normal experience, but also finding ourselves at home in the world. And today I have one of my favorite people in the world. Um, The joy of this book club has been hearing everybody else's thoughts about the book, but then also getting to talk about the book with friends, which is one of life's greatest pleasures. And today I have to chat with me about Wrinkle in Time, my friend, Bose Harrington. Welcome back on the show, Bose. Hello, Joy. It's so fun to have you. Bose has done, how many podcasts have we done? I've lost track at this point. Like nine, ten. I, yeah, nine, ten. We've done some on, um, gosh, we did, we did one on mystery novels over when I was doing my escape cast, which everyone should listen to. Um, Chesterton, one on the Inklings. Yes. Several poetry podcasts. Yes, we've done several poetry podcasts. We both have Patreon, so we do readings. We should do another reading sometime soon. Um, and you've, I've even begun to have you seep into the rest of my family's ridiculous podcasting because we're all doing something and you just did one on mystery novels also with my brother nathan on his podcast the overthinkers so um it's always fun to have bows chatting about books um and that's kind of how we connected right because we both found each other over twitter tell bows tell people about your twitter account uh what you do on it and why you enjoy it well i tweet at sketches by bows and i tweet very whimsically about books art culture and literature Bose's, yes, that's a very succinct uh, analysis, and Bose's, when I need to just have, like, a jolt of hope, sincerity, and oftentimes absurdity and laughter and whimsy, I just go and scroll through, uh, you know, your, your Twitter feed, and I think we we are co-conspirators in urging each other on towards that, which is great fun. Um, and Bose, I, one of the funny things, and we were chatting about this before we started the podcast, about doing this book club at this time is that you and I have for a long time been insisting that whimsy and books and literature and finding beauty in the world is a really essential part of being a human Um, and that it's an essential part no matter what. But we kind of live in a world right now that is quite literally falling apart. And so it kind of tests that, that thesis, you know what I mean? And so doing the book club in the midst of all of that has been kind of this interesting experiment and do we still enjoy books and beauty and whimsy in the midst of the world falling apart you know what i mean i'm seeing this idea going around on twitter it's been prevalent for the last four years but especially lately during the pandemic as people will reply to me or reply to a friend and they'll say why are you posting about fun things you should be posting about politics and unemployment and the pandemic and like, I think that's a really unhealthy mindset. I think that whimsy is good, actually. 
Mm-hmm. And if you look at all the major religions, they sort of push this idea that a healthy person is someone who has a sense of humor. And mm-hmm. that if you lose your sense of humor, you've lost thing vital about yourself. And so I think that's especially important when bad things are happening. Mm-hmm. That too. Chesterton has this wonderful line in The Man Who Was Thursday, he, or in The World Is Falling Apart in that book, he says, always be comic in a tragedy. What else can you be? <laughs> I love that. And you know, it's funny. I've been actually writing a section in my PhD right now on the use of humor as a way to cope with death. And mm-hmm. what I've been writing about is, and it's funny when you start writing something in a PhD because you think through something you haven't had to think through before, but humor to humor is an invitation to regard something in an amusing way, right? And to do that, you have to have a little bit of distance or perspective between yourself and the thing that you're laughing about. And I think that that in that sense, humor plays this really important role of it actually gives us perspective. Rather than being something that's not deep, it's the thing that helps us kind of step back and it disrupts our despair and our our bad feelings and helps us regard the world from a different perspective. And I don't think we would be as, um, we wouldn't be as wise, we wouldn't have as much perspective if we weren't able to do that. And so when people take... Sorry, I was say when people take things really seriously, I don't think that's necessarily more deep or actually has a better perspective on the world. Something that I've always thought was really strange and interesting was Kenneth Branagh, who has done all those Shakespeare movies. Mm-hmm. He, uh, um, he was interviewed and he said, I actually think that Shakespeare's comedies are deeper than his tragedies. Mm-hmm. But people don't notice because we have a tendency in our culture to underrate mm-hmm. humor. And yeah. so we think the tragedies are the highest form of Shakespeare's art when actually it's the comedies. And you know what I think? It, I think part of that is because it is easier, I think, intellectually and even in some ways emotionally to look at the world and be like, it's all terrible. Whereas mm-hmm. a more complex view of the world is like, oh, the crazy thing is that the world is both incredibly beautiful and incredibly broken. And it actually takes a lot more nuance to be able to hold those two things together. I always think of Frederick Buechner's quote where he says, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen in it. Do not be afraid. Um, and But I think that's what Shakespeare's comedies are. Like I think of Imports Being Earnest. It's very nearly a tragedy. But the thing it depicts so well is the raucous humor, the ridiculous reasons that humans do things, that they do bad things, that they're usually not like they're usually very complicated. It's usually not a, the world's all bad or the world's all good. It's kind of exercising the muscle of being able to hold those two things together. Yes. Yeah, so. So, Bose and I both think that focusing on things like this on literature is, it's, if it's an escape, it's an escape that gives us perspective and helps us to live more bravely in the world. And- I love the line from Man Alive where he says, I don't deny that there should be priests Mm -hmm. to say that men will one day die, but I also think there should be another type of priest called poets Mm. to remind us that we are not dead yet. And I think writers like Chesterton and Madeline Lingle have this ability to see both sides of the world at Mm. the same time, to see um, the beauty and the horror. And I think it because they see the essential strangeness of things, they, Mm. they see how beautiful it is while also seeing sort of the nightmarish aspects of it. And it takes a real poet to do that. And so we need poets to bring us into that perspective to kind of shock us awake. And that's something that Chesterton does in his novels. And that's something that Madeleine Lingle does in A Wrinkle in Time. Absolutely. And I think that the thing people keep on saying to me over and over again in the comments is they keep saying, 
this has been such a poignant read for right now because it's helping them engage with the strangeness of the world, which holds together both the beauty and the difficulty and helps us think about how can I be like a Meg? How can I wrestle with the dark thing and Mrs. Wishes and the Mrs. What's and Mrs. Who's? You know, how do we enter into the strange and wonderful world? They give us new eyes and new ways to see things. Mm. Yeah. Well, which I guess means that eventually we should talk about Madeline Lingle and the book itself. Um, Bose, when, when, when was the first thing you read, or what was the first thing you read by Madeline Lingle? Probably this book back in eighth grade. Did it make an impression on you or not? I remember it being very strange, and <laughs> I wondered what her perspective was, because she seemed to be a Christian at certain points, but also she seemed to have a more ecumenical view that all religions were equal in some ways, and I didn't know what to make of that at the time because I was a little fundamentalist. And then at the end of the book, when they go to Camazotes and all the kids are playing basketball at the same time, and it's really eerie, it disturbed me, but I didn't know what her point was. Like, I didn't understand the thrust of the satire at the time. Hmm. Do you feel like you understood it better as an adult? I think so. I think she's getting at, I think people read it at the time and thought it was um, a satire against communism, but I see it more as a exposing the conformity at the heart of capitalist democracy. Yeah, well, I, I think, think I think it's that interesting she's... to have both of those intention. Well, and I think, I think that really what she's getting at is just the impulse of humans to get into, um, to conform for safety. Yeah. And that both of those and their extremes are a willingness to do that, um, you know, and their negative extremes. Um, but I definitely agree. And I think it's so interesting that around this time you have so many novels kind of dealing with similar themes of conformity and what it really means to be a human and pain and desire and all those things kind of running together. And I think it's fascinating that we think of that as sort of the golden era, you know, the mm -hmm. 50s, the housewives, but yeah. if you look at the literature of the time, especially the science fiction literature, people were terrified. Well, because, you know, I mean, this was, gosh, when was this published? It was the 50s, right? So. Yeah, 60, oh, 62. So they had, in the back of their minds, we had this, this huge global trauma of, like, the nuclear bomb. That this had never happened before. It's something they could never have imagined. And now it just kind of, like, hung as a fear. Um, it's really, it's kind of like Camazots in the sense that I think people had gotten out of this great grief of World War II and were trying to be like, everything, everything is happy, awesome, you know, kind of trying to carry yeah. on while also having these huge impending fears that were hovering over them. Um, so it is interesting how we think back on eras as golden, but I think the literature really does reflect that kind of mixture of trying to be okay and also having both the past trauma of World War II and the hovering fear of nuclear warfare. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty heavy. Um, so, and recently you've read a book which I don't know why I I think I hadn't told you to read it because I just assumed that you had read it because it seemed like such a Bose book. Um, but you just read Walking on Water, right? So our mutual friend Miranda sent me Walking on Water because she found out that we were doing a mm -hmm. Wrinkle in Time podcast and she, she was appalled that I'd never read this book. So she sent it to me in the mail and it was wonderful. And the reason that Miranda and I both assume it's a very Bose book is because it is, it is all about... Um, well, how would you define the book? How, what would you say its central thing is? It's sort of half memoir, half autobiography, and half 
manual of creativity for the writer and artist. Yes, and specifically from Lingle's perspective, an artist who is a Christian. Yeah, and um, I think I think the reason it became so popular we've we've talked about this, but I think is because that wasn't like a a high era for Christian art <laughs> when she wrote it in the eighties, and so I. People who grew up in the evangelical culture um, in that time period can tell you that the arts were sort of completely frowned upon, and if you told mm-hmm. people you were an artist, they would look askance and say, why aren't you going into missions, or why aren't yeah. you going into preaching? And like, there was no concept that art and beauty are good things like there is in the older Christian traditions. Yeah, and exactly. And so I think this was a really influential book, because for a lot of people, it's the first time they picked up a book, and it said being an artist, being a writer is something that can... It's good, actually. It's good. It can glorify God. It can show you the beauty of the world. So, Bose, how did you enjoy Walking in Water? What were some of your thoughts? I loved it. I particularly liked getting to know her Mm. because she just seems like the dearest woman. She Mm. talks in the first and second chapters about her life and how she lives in this hundred-year-old farmhouse Mm. and how her husband works on General Hospital and she goes out into her front yard and there's a big apple tree and she takes fresh apples off the apple tree and bakes them into pies and then she goes upstairs and writes on her little typewriter. Mm. It's just wonderful. I feel like she reminds me of your mom in some ways and I wish that she was still alive so I could go over to her house and eat apple pie with her in a warm glass of milk. I know, I know. I think that one of the gifts that she gives, especially in her nonfiction, is just you want to read it because you like her as a person. You feel like she's kind of mothering you or friending you through the book. Um, and I love that about her. What did you think of some of her commentary on writing and... Oh, and we talked about sacramentality. What were some of your thoughts about the way she talks about that? Yeah, I love that in contrast to many evangelical Christians in the 80s, she has a healthy sense of the sacramentality of the world. If you're not familiar with that term, it just means that the glory of God manifests in physical things, in physical reality, in mm-hmm. the material world. And that was sort of a, considered a heresy in some circles. <laughs> um, but she insists, no, every physical thing, your body is good, writing is good, sitting and eating an apple pie is good. Mm-hmm. You yeah. can enjoy God while doing those things. And that, it, yeah, and that you can enjoy it in God and that it also even communicates something about God to you, that the whole... Mm-hmm. The whole world is a great song, which is kind of what she talks about in one of the earlier chapters. The whole world is a great song that every part of it can communicate something about God. And I think she takes that, too, um, to the logical extent that doing anything, doing any good thing, being an artist, is something that can kind of be a prayer, can be a uh, an outpouring of praise. And kind of thinking of that even as a vocation or as an act of, it's almost like an act of liturgy. To be a writer is to is to recognize God and to bring glory to God in that. And I think I think that was really a relief for a lot of people who kind of intuitively loved stories or loved and found God in those things, but didn't have a language for saying, this relates me to God. It, it influenced a whole generation of Christian writers and musicians mm-hmm. and storytellers because we felt like we finally had language to justify our vocations. Mm. We didn't have to defend them to other people. We could just say what I'm doing is good. This is what God wants me to do. Yeah, and she kind of gave gave people a way for speaking about that, which I love, in a very personal way. I sometimes wonder if it cost her a lot to be someone who wrote so personally about her life. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting reading um, 
reading Sarah Arthur, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, her section about kind of some of the tensions and things of of how personal she was. And But I think that was such a gift, too, that you feel so close to her as you read. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, Nathan just read, my brother Nathan just read Rocky and Water this year. And he said one of the things he liked about it was that it was so distinctly womanly in the sense of that her presence as a mother and as a woman is so there in a way that makes it even more rich and more delightful because it's so distinctly who she is and who she is as this mother and this woman, which is, I think, why I've always been drawn to her is she's one of those few people you can point to and go, oh, yes, she is a motherly, womanly person who lived into her calling as an artist and a writer beautifully, you know, so she's a lot of fun while also being this very quirky person who like, you know, is very happy to admit her faults. So I like that about her a lot. I just like to think that we would have been friends if we had met. I know, I know, me too. I wish you would make me apple pie. <laughs> that also makes me want apple pie, even though it's like not not really the not season the for season. apple pie. But when I go back to Scotland, I know because this is what it was last year, our, our red apple tree will be ripe by the time I get back. So I'm kind mm-hmm. of excited about that. Um, so a quick thing I wanted to do before we get into this week's chapter is you, uh, you, we had talked about science fiction as a genre, and I haven't really explored that much in this podcast, and like in this series. So do you have any, I, I remember when I read this, I remember thinking, I don't like science fiction. And then I read this and I thought, oh, maybe I could like science fiction. <laughs> so Bose, could you tell us a little bit about kind of the genre of science fiction and characteristics of it? And yeah. And how it relates to Wrinkle in Time. I'll say this. There's a lot of science fiction that I don't like. I consider myself more of a, a whimsical fantasy reader. Mm-hmm. But I like this particular tradition in science fiction, the one that she's writing in. It's very Doctor Who-ish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she actually released this book the year before Doctor Who first went on the air. Oh. And uh, it, they're strikingly similar in uh, the things that they do because... It's about, this book, there's a lot of planet hopping and traveling through time and space, and that's mm-hmm. sort of the the main idea behind Doctor Who, whereas in this book, Meg tesseracts and mm-hmm. or tessers, and in Doctor Who, they have the TARDIS, but it's the same thing. They're doing the yeah. same thing. Yeah. And there's kind of a similar emotional feeling, I think, to the books, too, that kind of... Yeah, the uh, there's this um, humanistic element to it. Um, it's not really... Atheist, even though a lot of the writers on Doctor Who were considered atheists, they had this very humanistic bent to them where they felt that um, there's something special or about humans and they yeah. believed in art and literature and humanity. And uh, they, if you watch a lot of Doctor Who, they create this, this sense of coziness that I think is essential to mm. the genre if you're writing for children. Mm. And because I've been reading Bruno Bettelheim's book, The Uses of Enchantment, which is one of the only books about the child psychology of mm. children's fiction. And he talks about when you're writing for children, it is essential that you give them a sense of the world, and not just the world, but the universe, the cosmos, being a safe place for them to live in. Mm. And um, with A Wrinkle in Time and Doctor Who, they sort of narrow the gap between the different worlds between our world and other worlds, mm. so that it feels like you're just walking next door. Yeah. And um, so 
the the universe, the vastness of space doesn't seem frightening. It seems like a big comforting blanket around you. Mm, I love that. It reminds me very much of, I guess this is almost two years ago now, which is really crazy to me. Time flies so quickly. But I did a podcast with Michael Ward about, um, you know, Lewis's idea of space versus the heavens, you know, like the older kind of understanding and how modern in modern times, because we have an understanding of how massive space is, we're like, it's huge. So it must be dark, scary and bad. Whereas, um, you know, Dr. Who and Lingle kind of create this sense of coziness and beauty and a sense of the world may be vast, but we are at home in it, uh, which I love. Actually, I have a quote about that. Um, from The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, which, mm-hmm. if y'all have not read that, I highly recommend this book. It, it changed my understanding of Christianity. But in chapter 3, he talks about the world being a good place, that we should mm-hmm. bathe in its beauty. And he has a whole section on outer space. Mm-hmm. And he wants he says he wants to deconstruct the myth of space as vast and terrifying. Um, and he's following in the tradition of C.S. Lewis, who did that in his space trilogy. Mm-hmm. And Dallas Willard writes... In Out of the Silent Planet, C.S. Lewis gives an imaginative description of how one of his main characters, Ransom, experiences a progressive lightning and exultation of heart as the airship carrying him moves away from the Earth. This is the quote from Out of the Silent Planet. A nightmare, long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science, was falling off him. He had read of space. At the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold vacuity the utter deadness which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him till now. Now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance on which they swam, mm-hmm. he had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly even upon the earth with so many eyes, and mm-hmm. here with how many more. And then Dallas Ford goes on to say, Some may object this is only literature. Yes, but it is nonetheless helpful in loosening the baseless images that, without scientific validation of any sort, flood in from the culture of pseudoscience to paralyze faith. Sometimes important things can be presented in literature or art that cannot be effectively conveyed in any other way. I love that so much. And I love the image of the womb of the world, because what could be more, or the womb of worlds, what could be more safe and comforting than a womb? It reminds me, when I was chatting with um, Dr. Ward, I was, I said, but, you know, they were wrong about the seven heavens, you know, like, so why does it matter that we still conceive it this way? And he said to me, because there, that was just a way of conceiving of the world. But what we don't recognize is that now we still are just articulating a way of conceiving of the world. Right. You know, we, but none of us have been to outer space. And when we do see pictures of outer space, it's usually like incredibly beautiful. Um, and so I think that's always a good thing to keep in mind. Reminds me of that um, wonderful sequence in The Tree of Life, which, again, everyone needs to watch at least once in their lives. Um, it's about a family in Texas, hmm. but there's a 14-minute segment randomly in the middle of the movie where he goes back and shows the creation of the entire universe and, yes. and shows the stars and the nebulas and these great, vast gulfs of light shining mm. down. And it is incredibly beautiful. It- and just shatters you with how beautiful the universe, the cosmos is. And he does it while playing the Lacrimosa, which is this gorgeous operatic piece that means um, the Lake of Tears. Which I, the reason I know it means the Lake of Tears is because of the series of unfortunate events. (laughs) Um, Because it teaches you that. But 
I think that that's this beautiful picture of how vastly beautiful the world is. And then this kind of loneliness or brokenness that literature is trying to teach us, you know, that ability to hold the beauty of that together. Um, and all of this, I think, plays into this week's chapter. Well, we were talking about kind of what is the theme of this chapter. Bose, you said to me that you think it's this kind of movement towards Meg feeling safe in the world. Um, you know, she's been through this huge kind of trauma. And I guess here I'll do my usual overview of the chapter. She's been through this, this great battle of being with the it. Um, and she's very nearly lost to it. And I think actually in some ways she kind of has lost to it. And we kind of get that sense in this chapter that her being lost to the it looks different than Charles Wallace, but it's the same kind of thing, you know, for Charles Wallace to be lost to the it is arrogance, but for Meg, it's despair. And so she's gone through this huge, terrible thing and she's, she can't move and she's paralyzed and, and everything's terrible. But as we move through this chapter, we move to this place from this place of despair and just red hot and white hot anger, um, to slowly, but surely, a safety that she almost doesn't want to accept because she's too mad about it. And, um, you know, throughout the course of this, it's, a, I was thinking as a writer, you know, we're always thinking about how you structure things. And I was, as I was reading this chapter, I was thinking about how this is a very useful, like scene because her father's getting caught up in everything and we're getting caught up in everything that the father needed to explain to us, but not in a way that feels boring. Cause it's like happening while she's waking up. And so I thought, oh, that was very clever of Lingle. She's kind of doing the, the narrating that we needed in a clever way. And, um, so that happens. And then the source of comfort, which is what I love is from this bizarre creature, right? It's the llama like thing. I picture it as like a big llama. I always, I always picture it like that too. Cause it's definitely furry. Furry. Yeah. And I always, it has, I tentacles. And it has tentacles. I guess the tentacles are furry in my mind. I always imagined them as furry. Like it's just kind of all furry. I don't know why, but as a kid reading this, I was just like, fascinated by these creatures. I, I think more than almost anything, I remember this chapter and then the next one, of course, who I will try not to speak of, but Aunt Beast, who is just simply one of my favorite characters. But it just so stuck with me because they were so weird, just very bizarre, but then they're also deeply comforting. And I think that's what's kind of the contradiction at the heart of this is it is this movement to feel at home and comforted and safe. I love that. It's the quote I opened up with. Um, that safety that flows through her, the warmth that seeps deep into her as the beast touches her. Um, so it's the safety and warmth and comfort mixed with the bizarreness and strangeness. And this being kind of like the thing that it holds together. Um, and that's kind of the entirety of the chapter. It's, it's not a very plot dense chapter. It's kind of a, a pause as all of these things are kind of coming to. Sort of the lull after the battle. The lull after the battle, yeah. It reminds me a lot um, emotionally and thematically of the very end of Order of the Phoenix when mm. Harry has had his traumatic battle with Voldemort and he's just so angry and Dumbledore, the, the wise elder, his father mm. figure is trying to calm him and um, trying to you know, emotionally walk him through that process just like Meg's father does. Yeah, and and I think the other thing that's similar to that is that feeling of a mentor trying to guide you through something, but then the main character also recognizing that the mentor is not... fallible. Yeah, he's fallible. He's not invincible. He's not perfect. Um, but I think even that's kind of a part of the learning to be safe in the world 
uh, and learn to be at home in the world, even if you're not safe. So, um, what we're like gaining a measure of independence. Yeah, gaining a measure of independence. So let's talk through a couple of these. So we kind of brought up several themes. Let's explore them a little bit each at a time. So we have the theme of strangeness and comfort. We have the theme of, to me, um, what it looks like for Meg to be taken over by the it. Because I think there's that wonderful line, which we'll read in a minute, where you kind of see her tip into this despair. Uh, and so her anger, her despair, just the amazing depiction of that. Um, and then that sense of moving into dependence, uh, into independence, and what that means for Meg. Let's explore those kind of one at a time. So let's talk first about Meg and kind of her experience of becoming like the it. I, I was saying, I think it's really interesting that when she first comes to, in the last chapter, kind of the picture of of the evil thing is this disembodied brain. And with, which is really weird, I love how, how that's stuck. It's so disturbing. It's so it's disturbing. Sick. And it's wonderful because it's it's not like and it oozed and it was gross and it was, you know, had horns. It's just like a normal thing that's not in its normal place. And that's what makes it extra. Yeah, that makes it extra bizarre. But that was kind of this picture of the evil thing. And to me, as Meg comes to, she is almost like the it because she can't move her body. She doesn't have any sensation. She literally is just her thoughts right now. And that creates this kind of terror for her. And, yeah. um, and I, I think that's really interesting. Say a little bit about what she said yesterday about her, um, her anger. Oh yeah. Maybe I'm misreading this, but it seemed to me like you were saying her despair sort of pulls her into the black thing. Mm -hmm. And is the, the thing that almost destroys her and her anger is what brings her out of it. Mm -hmm. And that it's her having to hold on to her anger in order to be saved from the thing that mm -hmm. is trying to destroy her. Yeah. And I think that, I, I think that is what happens. And I think it's interesting because they say, you know, in psychology that anger is never a primary emotion. So there's always something kind of lurking behind anger. But so it's either sadness or fear. But anger is like it comes to our rescue because it tells us we can do something. So if we feel afraid, anger's like, we could do something about that fear. It gives us agency. Yeah, it gives us agency. And I think that's what's happening with Meg. Um, and I think that's actually really related to, to also to her moving towards independence, that she doesn't sink back into something. I love a line where she just says, what are you going to do? And to me, that's, that's her moving out of despair and into an indignation that keeps her moving. Mm. Yeah. And it really is a very, uh, quite an amazing anger that she did, that she displays. Isn't the it? rawness of this, I love it because it's, first of all, it's unusual to see this kind of visceral anger in any children's fiction, but especially I think back then it would have been even harder. Her book was rejected something like 30 times before it picked up a publisher. They didn't think it was going to sell. They even warned her, we're, we're publishing the book, but it's not going to sell many copies, you know. And uh, um, But the intensity of the emotions when I was rereading it the other day, I was struck by just how much I felt what she was feeling and how it resonated with me. It was like some of the scarier passages in Harry Potter. Yeah, no, and actually I remember even as a kid reading it and it kind of weirdly comforted me because I always had very big feelings. Um, 
And I would sometimes feel like, is there something wrong with me? Like, why do I, why are my feelings so big? Um, but then to have Meg and to see that and to relate to that, I would think, no, these are, A, other people have these feelings, and B, they can be important and meaningful, and they can do something. And, and that's they, another function of great children's literature is that it allows children to process emotions that they do not feel like they get capable of understanding or handling. And also it gives them agency. It allows them to live vicariously through other people who are doing things so that they then develop the independence and skills to do things on their own. Yes, I love that. And I love because that's what's happening for Meg. And so I think for little readers, that gives them, they kind of to live through her. And um, which is pretty much exactly what I was just describing when I read it as a kid. It's cathartic. The whole scene is just incredibly cathartic. I think so. Coming after the the battle with the external creature, Mm -hmm. there's the internal battle, which is Mm -hmm. just as important, and um, it changes her character. Yeah. So. And I think that's why the book continues to resonate 50 years later. Absolutely. I was gonna say, do you think that this maps on at all to the kind of hero's journey kind of tropes, at all? Oh, surely. Yeah. It's like a hero's journey in space, which we don't see a lot of, or at least not done very well. Yeah. Yeah. Normally when you have outer space, science fiction, it stays set in space and Mm -hmm. it doesn't touch on Earth. But this starts on Earth, goes into space, and then comes back to Earth, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, and she comes back to Earth, I think, quite transformed. Um, What do you think, what do you think is the deal with this gray planet that's like, I think when I first read it, I thought, because the whole way that Lingle presents everything is like, well, boring, you know, everything being the same, all that is bad. When I first read it, I remember, and you kind of have this ambivalence right at the beginning of, is it a safe planet? Is it a dark planet? And, but it seems like we begin to seem to think that it might be a safe planet. So why do you think it's all gray? What is the deal with the creatures? You know what I mean? Like, what, what do you think... What do you think this planet is about? There are just so many things in this book that I don't understand, and I don't know if we're meant to completely understand them. Uh-huh. It reminds me of something Tolkien said about how he he wanted to create Tom Bombadil because he wanted there to be mysteries in Middle-earth that had no explanation. Hmm. And uh, um, Tom Bombadil is this creature that sort of comes out of nowhere and you never really get him and you're not supposed to and I think there's a lot of that going on in this book it's strange and it's supposed to be and I think it's supposed to make you look at the world and see your own strangeness to look in the mirror and see the weird alien creature looking back at you yeah and I think that that's it's kind of going back to the idea of whimsy and humor that we often just lose perspective on things because we're too close to them and so I think sometimes it's that great quote from Chesterton where he says you know in fairy tales, rivers run with wine so that we, for one wild moment, realize that they run with water. Uh-huh. And I love that moment where Meg um, looks at the creature and is like kind of re- repulsed by it and thinks, ah, it's so strange. And then she goes, I guess it probably feels that way about me. Yes. And then she goes, I guess it can't see me. Um, which is this, I think it's it's functioning for Meg to kind of, it's the making strange. Alison Milbank does that, it says that in one of her essays that Fairy tales help us make strange the world so that we actually engage with it with a clearer perspective, with a fresher perspective. And I think that's what she's doing. Um, yeah. I think it's so interesting with the idea of children's books being like one of the roles being making children feel safe in the world because 
I do think that this chapter has this kind of trajectory from the trauma, like you said, the external battle to the internal battle, and then it has this movement towards her feeling totally safe in the beast's arms. And I think something that's important about that is we could sometimes think that maybe for children to feel safe, they needed to just like not have any negative emotions or not experience anything bad. But for Meg, and I think the reason this chapter is so powerful, it's because it actually lets there be this difficulty and terribleness and it reckons with those things as real, but moves slowly to this place of comfort and safety. And I think that's more powerful than if you just made it easy all along, don't you? Oh, definitely. I think the the most lasting and most powerful children's stories are the ones that are a little gruesome and a little scary. Yes. And I, I think this is one of those. I think so. It's that Chesterton quote. We've been quoting a lot of Chesterton, as we always do. As always. Um, but it's that fairy tales don't chill, tell children that dragons exist. They already know that. They tell them that dragons can be defeated. And that's, I think, kind of at the center of what's happening. But Meg is beginning to feel safe, and I think that will be an important part of how she then goes back into the battle um, and emerges victorious. And I think something else that Lingle is keen to emphasize here is um, sort of the closeness of space, but also mm. how it's not empty, how it's filled with millions and millions of creatures, and that if we could see everything, we would know that we are not alone in the universe, that we're mm. surrounded by planets, that the, the universe is more full than it is empty. Sort of the mm. idea, the, the old medieval idea of the communion of saints, mm. that the dead are not gone, that they surround us, that mm. they live in the air that we inhabit. Yeah, I. It's, it's funny. Spoken from Julian of Norwich, um, where she says, um, "Okay, she has a vision where she's let down into the bottom of the sea, <laughs> and sees green hills and valleys. And then this is how she interprets it: If a man or woman were there under the wide waters, if he could see God as God is continually with man, he would be safe in soul and body and come to no harm. And mm -hmm. furthermore, he would have more consolation and strength than all this world can tell. For it is God's will that we believe that we see Him continually." Um, though he, it seems to us this might be only partial, and through this belief he makes us always to gain more grace. For God wishes to be seen, and he wishes to be sought, and he wishes to be expected, and he wishes to be trusted. Mm, I love that. And um, I think this actually kind of gives us a good place to bring this discussion to a close, because I think that is what's happening, is she's going to the vastness of the world and finding a safety. And I want to end by reading... Um, this also another wonderful passage from Julian. It's fun that we both picked up Julian passages because she's been my she's been my mentor for the summer. I at the beginning of the summer I decided I wanted to read her because I realized she was an anchoress, which meant that she stayed in her room all of her life after she took her vows, and that felt like what I was doing at the beginning of the <laughs> lockdown. Relatable, very relatable. And so I ordered it, and I was waiting for it on my front stoop because uh, I knew it was going to arrive and one of my friends on her daily one kilometer walk walked by the gate and um and said what are you doing and I said oh I'm waiting for divine revelations and she kind of like looked at me funny and went okay and then walked on and then I realized later that that sounded insane uh, but but I Julian has been such a close and wonderful friend throughout the summer and I did the patreon book club on her um but one of the themes that she says over and over again the thing that I think has stuck with me more than anything is her little phrase where she says he is keeping us very safe there's this sense that no matter what happens in the world god sees us and he 
and he's near to us and he's keeping us very safe. And one of the most famous passages from Julian of Norwich, which I'm going to end by reading today, is this vision that she has of the entire cosmos, of everything that's made. And she sees it as, um, as a little hazelnut. So to end today's wonderful conversation, I'm going to read that passage. Um, but before I do, thank you, Bose, as ever, for joining me. It's thank always, you, Jill. It's always fun. We'll have to do more podcasts very soon. And everyone should go check out Bose's wonderful Twitter. And also join his Patreon, because I get daily um, delightful things in my inbox from Bose's Patreon, uh, from poetry readings to the outlines of various novels to Bose's own wonderful writing. So do check both of those things out um, at Sketches by Bose on Twitter. So thank you for being on the show today, Bose. And I shall end with Julian's vision of the entire cosmos. And in this vision, God also showed a little thing, the size of a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed to me, and it was round as a ball. I looked at it with my mind's eye and thought, what can this be? And the answer came in a general way like this. It is all that is made. I wondered how it could last, for it seemed to me so small that it might have disintegrated suddenly into nothingness. And I was answered in my understanding. It lasts and always will because God loves it. And in the same way, everything has its being through the love of God. And in this little thing, in the cosmos, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God cares for it. Thank you for listening, everybody. Remember that he is keeping you very safe and tune in for next week when we shall see what will happen to Meg and to all the Mrs. W's, too, who have been mysteriously silent. Thanks for listening, everybody.